0: Whatever way you come to Christianity and all that You can build this entire kind of palace of faith and understanding But actually these four questions are the foundation And the reason I want to really flag this up Is because an awful lot of Christians Don't seem to ever ask these questions And you can end up building this massive palace of understanding On a foundation that if these questions are not answered in a biblical way You're going to have issues so here are the four questions, the four big questions that we've got to wrestle with. Number one, who is God and what is he like, is the God question. And so many people assume they know what God is like. Well, I don't know what God's like. He's, you know, powerful and glorious and created everything and he's in charge. And, you know. and so everyone's got this kind of assumed definition of God. But I just want to challenge you to get into your Bibles and from cover to cover just chase that question. Say, God, I want to know you. What are you like? And the second question, number two, is what does it mean to be human? The, The Bible talks about being made in the image of God. What does that mean? Because if your view of God is one way, then your view of being human will fit with that. If your view of God is a different way, then your view of being human will fit with that. And I'll just give you a little snapshot here. A lot of people view God as the ultimate CV. Like he's got the ultimate CV. And then what does it mean to be human? Well, obviously it means to build the best CV you can, a godly one. Uh, you, You spend your whole life chasing resources and education and skills and abilities, trying to be the biggest, best you that you can be. And I just want to suggest that that might actually not be the point. That God is not defined primarily by his CV, he's defined primarily by his family portrait. It's the Father who loves the Son, and the Son who delights in the Father and responds to Him. The Father's always been the Father, and the Son's always been the Son, and the Spirit's always been the loving communicator between the two. And that's who God is. By definition, He's a relational God. By definition, He's not a glory-grabbing God. He's not a great glory vacuum in the sky. He's a glory-giving God. That's radically different. And Jesus has come to reveal that God and and if that's what God is like then maybe my life is not defined by my CV as much as it is by my relationships. Both on a human level and especially uh, my relationship with God. Uh, The first question is the God question, second question the human question, third question, what's sin? What is sin? What is the problem? And I'm amazed how many people never ask that question. Everyone knows what sin is. Sin is, you know, like stealing stuff and stuff. you'll know you're not answering a question when you use the word stuff a lot (laughs) the sin problem this thing that divides us from God uh, a lot of people think well it's just behavioural it's just doing wrong stuff and because we do wrong things we need a solution to fix the wrong things that we do and that's so paper thin The reality is that since God is relational and we are made in the image of a relational God the problem between us and God is a relational problem it's a heart problem the heart of the human problem is the human heart and it's going to take something that only God can do to turn our hearts from our captivated self-love to being drawn into relationship with a God who is love and that goes so much deeper than just stealing biscuits when you're five and paper clips when you're 25. <laughs> sin is so much worse than just behavioral. It's a profound, deep problem. And yet there's a lot of people who never even ask the question, what is sin? If you don't ask the question, what is sin? You're not going to get the right solution to it. If you go to the doctor... And you, you go in and, and you say, you know, I'm, I'm kind of feeling a bit, kind of actually this side, a bit, bit painful. You know, I've got this kind of sharp pain in the lower right abdomen. And the doctor says, okay, yeah, I'm going to put your left leg in a cast. That's concerning. You know, you kind of think, whoa, that's what they, what they say is true about the NHS. <laughs> Just a joke. Uh, but, you know, if, if the diagnosis is wrong, then the cure is not going to work. And if our problem is simply that we're not good behavioral people, we don't behave well, then the cure is going to be one way. But if the problem is a heart problem, if the problem is a relational problem, the cure has got to be so much more than just a behavior fix. And so God, human, sin and salvation, if you like. You can call it the salvation question or the grace question. I tend to think of sin and grace language. Problem solution. What is the solution? And so much of what we hear in Christianity is is kind of thin at this this end of the questions as well because we have a very behavioral view of sin and we have a very legal view of salvation. That God does this transaction and legally our status is changed. That's great, it's true, it's wonderful. But what about the relationship? What about the transformation that comes when God gives us his spirit? And so I just encourage you to take those four questions. If you forget everything else I say, take those four questions, God, human, problem, solution. God, human, problem, solution. And read your Bible like it's going out of fashion. Just read it from cover to cover. Read it as if it's a good book. It's funny. It is. And as you read it, over time you get to to understand it more and more. But don't worry about understanding it first time. Just keep going with those questions in mind and you'll find that actually that's the very core of the issue. And the foundational question of the foundational questions is the foundational question of what is God like? So we're going to look at that. Uh, We're going to use John 12 to look at it. The whole of John's Gospel is a revelation of what God is like. If you have seen me, Jesus said, you have seen the Father. John 14. Jesus came to show us what God is like. Let's pray that we have eyes to see, hearts to receive the revelation of of what kind of a God we have because John twelve is one of those places where if you slow down and actually see what it's saying, it will rock your world. And it will shake your theology. And it will make you go, oh, hang on a minute. I thought I knew what God was like. And so let's look at it. John basically what what starts in five, in terms of the flow of John, carries on till twelve. Okay, the the trial, if you like, of of Jesus that began when he heals the guy on the Sabbath. That issue is lingering right the way through the year. By the autumn, they're ready to stone him in John eight, but it's not his time. In chapter ten, he's back in the the kind of uh, December time uh, for the feast of uh, dedication, and then in chapter eleven, it's sort of. February time when he raises Lazarus from the dead that's kind of a big deal, that kind of stirs things up even more raising Lazarus, they didn't like that, the the authorities and by 12 he's arriving in Jerusalem so this is the start of the Easter week so this really is the hinge of the book, this is the point at which the three years of ministry has been written about in John's terms and now the final week of his life before the cross is going to be the focus and so this is a, a key moment and, and as you read through John let me encourage you to do this as well as reading your whole Bible like it's fun and, and you'll find that it is read through John multiple times and as you go through maybe one way to do that is just pick a word and spot it as you go believe you'll find about 98 of those just all the way through believe, 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 believe. brilliant, just, just look at how believe develops and, and pick a, another John word father, son spot that pairing all the way through look at the signs, you'll see the signs coming not quite as many, look for the I am's there's the seven I am kind of, I am the door I am the gate, I am the resurrection and the life, I am the way, the truth, all those I am's there's another set of seven I am's did you know that? a set of seven I am's with nothing coming after before Abraham was born I am, that's what almost got him stoned and so there's a whole set, they call them the I am absolutes, and so you can chase those through. And one of the words you'll want to do a little chase through John with is the word glory. Glory, it's a, it's a key word, it's a big word. And as you go through John's Gospel, you, you get this, this idea of glory, and, and, and combined with it is the word hour often. My hour has not yet come. There's this anticipation building all the way through the book that there's going to be this moment in time this point at which Jesus is going to be glorified and it wasn't until after he was glorified that they understood these things and it says that a couple of times and there's this anticipation building about the glorifying of Jesus and you go, oh this is exciting because you know, glory, that's a big God word and then you come to John 12 and you, you discover that maybe you haven't grasped what glory is after all Let's look at it. We'll dive in. Ooh, verse 16. Uh, This is in the triumphal entry. Jesus is arriving in Jerusalem. The crowd is going crazy for him and they're singing and quoting verses. I'm not going to mention those, otherwise I'll get distracted and we'll never get to where we're supposed to get to. So, (coughs) um, just jumping in after the verses. Uh, Verse 16, it says, At first, his disciples did not understand all this. Only after Jesus was glorified did they realize that these things had been written about him uh, and that he, they had done these things to him. Now the crowd that was with him when he called Lazarus from the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to spread the word. So there's a lot of hype here, a lot of uh, excitement. Verse 18, many people because they had heard that he had given this miraculous sign went out to meet him So you've got the crowd that were there when he raised Lazarus, that's probably a fairly Galilean crowd, a a bunch of uh, folks from up north, okay, and you probably think that's a cool thing, but uh, down in Judea they didn't tend to like the up north crowd, but this up north crowd would come down for the feast, and they typically come down uh, on the other side, uh, from your perspective, the other side of the, uh, hang on, which way are you? It's over here. Uh, the other side of the Jordan River they'd come down to avoid the Samaritans they'd come across at Jericho and they'd come up uh, the, the very steep nasty road and they'd, they'd get to the top and they'd come to this little village of Bethany and come round the, the Mount of Olives and get to Jerusalem. So it's probably quite a Galilean crowd that was there when Jesus uh, or that had heard about Jesus raising Lazarus and that that hype had spread and now they're arriving and people are coming out from Jerusalem so there's the Jerusalemites Jerusalem is, is, I don't know the Jerusalemites coming out and the Galileans arriving and the word spreading and the hype is building and it's because of the raising of Lazarus that was big, big news and so verse 19 so the Pharisees said to one another See, this is getting us nowhere. Look how the whole world has gone after him. All that we've been doing for the last year to try to undermine this Jesus movement, is failing. Look, he's got a massive crowd and the Pharisees are getting twitchy. Okay, so this is kind of a key moment. Jesus arriving, the crowd's going crazy and the Pharisees watching. And they're saying, it's like the whole world is responding to him. Look at what happens next. Verse twenty. Now there were some Greeks among those who went up to worship at the feast. I'm not quite sure how that works. Greeks being Gentiles, being non-Jews, but they're going up for the feast. So they're sort of proselytes, somehow converts that are there. But you know, they're there with what do Greeks have? Um, nice kebabs or something. You know, they're they're obviously Greek and they're not Jewish in the normal sense. So here they are in the crowd. And they came to Philip who was from Bethsaida in Galilee with a request. Sir, they said we would like to see Jesus. Philip went to tell Andrew. Andrew and Philip in turn told Jesus. So here's here's kind of a key moment. Here's some Greeks and a crowd of of Jews, Hebrew speaking Jews or Aramaic speaking Jews. Who are they going to speak to to get to the popular guy? Well, they hear that one of his disciples has a name they recognize. Philippos. Like Philip of Macedon, right? Philip is as Greek a name as you're going to find. And so if there's any way in, he's the man. Okay, so they come up to Philip and they ask Philip, excuse me, sir, we would love to see Jesus. And for some reason, maybe just the the dynamics of the moment or whatever, Philip goes to one of, maybe Jesus' closer uh, kind of inner circle, or at least close to the inner circle, he goes to Andrew. And together they come up to Jesus And so Jesus has now been introduced to the issue that there's some Greeks here who'd like a little conflap, sir, is that okay? Okay, so that's the context. Simple question, you'd think, right? I mean, how how hard of a question is that? It's not confrontational, it's not a legal tension moment, it's just uh, excuse me, Jesus, there's some Greeks and they'd like a chat. And so Jesus' answer, obviously, is going to be crystal clear and simple, isn't it?
1: Mm,
0: Let's have a look. Verse 23, Jesus replied, okay, oh no, wait, it doesn't say that. It says, Jesus replied, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Okay, yeah, Um, Jesus, there's these Greeks, and they'd like to have a little chat before we do the whole Jerusalem thing. I tell you the truth, unless a kernel of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains only a single seed. But if it dies, it produces many seeds. Yeah. Um, There's these Greeks. And and do you have a moment? I mean, could we interrupt? The man who loves his life will lose it. While the man who hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. Amen. Now, Jesus, there's these Greeks. Whoever serves me must follow me. And where I am, my servant also will be. My father will honor the one who serves me. Yes. Now now back to the Greeks Do you, you see what's going on? He's not answering the question Now I've got no indication that they kept asking, I'm just being facetious but, but I want you to kind of catch the point that they've asked a simple question and he's going off on this really impressive speech about something, but what? Why? What's the connection? In fact, what's he even on about? Forget the Greeks for now What's he talking about? What? Now uh, the hour there we go An appropriate page-turning moment there. The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Let's just forget the Greeks and just think about what Jesus is saying. After 11 chapters of my time has not yet come, now is not the hour. The hour is coming, I tell you, the hour will come. and It's just been building and building and building. Now Jesus is saying, this is it. Now is the time for the Son of Man to be glorified. (laughs) What comes to mind you kind of have that, I, I, I don't know, maybe you don't have this, but for me I have that feeling I have right now with a very bright light uh, in my eyes, like glory, ooh, right? That, that this, is the, this is the glory moment. And you remember in Luke and in Mark and in Matthew the disciples were quite keen on the whole glory thing. Hey Jesus, when you come you know, into your kingdom, can we sit in the little mini thrones next to your big throne? They were into that, and you know that's that's what glory is, isn't it? It's about power, it's about impressiveness, it's about demonstration of, of of weightiness. It's sort of about spiritual heavenly bling. I mean, it's something kind of like big. That's glory, and we all love it, right? And Jesus says, yeah, right, okay. So so atomic glory. This is the time for the Son of Man to be glorified. And then what does He do? He says, I tell you the truth, unless a kernel of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains only a single seed. Oh my word, Jesus, what are you on about? How do you get from Greeks to glory to seed dying? Now you could say Jesus is just not very good at answering questions. Or maybe what we've seen already makes you think, hang on, let's hang in there with him. Maybe he's on to something. Here's the thing. I don't think we know what glory is. I think we've been so trained. Can I be really blunt? We've been so trained in our post-Genesis 3 world where everything is twisted and upside down that we think we know what glory is glory is being at the top of the pyramid glory is about being majestic and is about being impressive when, when the serpent spoke to Eve in the garden and he told her the lie what was the lie? you can be like God what she should have said is listen sunshine, serpent, whatever your name is um, I already am like God I'm made in his image. I relate to him. I depend on him. I respond to him. I am like God. But the serpent offered an insidious lie. Not just you can be like God. The lie includes the fact that God is like I'm implying. That God is the ultimate power broker. That God is the ultimate peak of the pyramid. And he doesn't want you to join him up there. But actually you can. And you can be the biggest CV in your own little universe. And there's just this insidious lie built into the lie that the serpent told her. And we live and swim and breathe and eat. Our lives are just saturated in the lie that God is the ultimate power broker and we need to be mini-gods. And Jesus is saying, no, no, no. Now is the hour for the Son of Man to be glorified. And let me give you some clue what that's like. You take a seed and and the seed remains a single seed unless it's dead you put it in the ground, you bury it you have a funeral for a seed and then you get a harvest somehow glorified it seems to be talking about death in fact, that's exactly where he goes here, if you love your life you're going to lose it, but the one who hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life whoever serves me must follow me Where I am, my servant also will be. What is that talking about? Where is he going? He's going to Jerusalem. He's going to the cross. And in Jesus' mind, this is the glory moment. How? Surely the cross is Jesus in his humanity, right? He's got to get through that so that he can then go back to the glory. Not in John's Gospel. In John's Gospel, the whole thing is building and building and building to the point where Jesus is exalted. He's lifted up on the cross. And that's the glory. And, and Jesus is saying, if you're going to follow me, you need to take up your cross and follow me. That's Luke language. Here it's, you be with me where I am. He's talking about going to the cross, he's talking about laying down his life. And my Father will honour the one who serves me. And the reality of the cross is drawing near. Look at verse 27. Now my heart is troubled. What, What shall I say? Father, save me from this hour? No, it was for this very reason I came to this hour. Father, glorify your name. And the most amazing thing happened. A voice came from heaven. I have glorified it and will glorify it again. Can you imagine if you were there? If, you, if you're kind of, maybe you're Philip or, or Andrew or um, Stephanopoulos or whatever the Greek's name is. You know, you're part of this kind of crowd standing around Jesus. And, and you're, you know, there's the Greek question and now he's talking about seeds. And now he looks really troubled about, he's talking about death and it seems to be bothering him. And he just cries out, Father, glorify your name. And his voice comes from heaven. I mean, how many times does that happen in history? That God speaks like that. Two, three, four times, not many. And these people were there and they heard it. Whoa, never going to forget that. And so the crowd that was there and heard it said it had thundered. Others said an angel had spoken to him. Jesus said, This voice was for your benefit, not mine. Now is the time for judgment on this world. Now the prince of this world will be driven out. Do you see that everything Jesus is saying is like he's zeroed in? He's locked on the cross. And this is the hour for him to be glorified. This is it. This is the reason that I came. This is the issue. This is the glory. The glory equals the cross. Verse 33. Jesus, oh sorry not 33 we've come to the end of 31 <clears throat> what about the Greeks? Jesus, I'm sorry to, I mean, this obviously is a p- powerful moment but we've still got this group of Greeks here but I, when I am lifted up from the earth will draw all men to myself including the Greeks there's the answer it's almost like he's saying Philip, Andrew thank you for introducing the Greeks they're just a little bit too soon I'm not going to talk to them right now because I'm here on a mission, and this is my glory moment. This is the glorification that I've been anticipating. I'm going to the cross, but when I am lifted up, I'm going to draw all people: Greeks, Scottish, Swedish, Faroese, English, Welsh I'm going to draw all people to myself. And so just, just tell them to hang on a bit. I'm almost there. Isn't that beautiful? And just to underline, to make sure we don't miss it, 33, he said this to show the kind of death he was going to die. This has been the anticipation all the way through the gospel. Back in chapter 8, Jesus said, when the Son of Man is lifted up, then you will know that I am. He says, unless you believe that I am, you're going to die in your sins, but I'm going to be lifted up and then you will know that I am. You'll know who I am, that I am the I am when I'm lifted up. And so that lifted up theme, you can trace that through. I'll give you a little clue. It's in chapter 3, chapter 8, chapter 12. But there's a little theme you trace through. And the lifted up is not this ascent into the glory with the angels singing and the big fanfare. It's being lifted up from the earth on a Roman piece of wood stripped and beaten and bleeding and naked and humiliated I can't even begin to describe and somehow in the upside down or maybe the right side upness of Jesus and God's way of thinking that's the glory moment how can that be? because that's the moment where we see most clearly what God is like who is God and what is he like? Our minds so easily go to uh, pictures from classical art where you've got this bearded figure on a throne with light coming out from behind him. And if you look carefully, he tends to look like a Greek philosopher because that's where the ideas come from. Yes, God's on the throne. Yes, God's in charge. Yes, God is powerful. But as my friend often puts it, it God kind of shrugs about his power. Yeah, of course I'm powerful. It's not a big deal. Let me talk to you about my son. Because that's the kind of God that he is. He's not a great glory vacuum trying to suck all the attention and all the worship. Why are these people worshipping me? They need to worship me. He's not like that. He's a glory giving God who loves his son and delights in his son and then gives his son to bring us into that same relationship. I remember hearing someone speak once and they said, imagine a conversation between the father and the son before the son came to the earth. Son, yes father, I love you son, I love you too father. Son, I want you to go to the earth anything you ask Father, anything for you and I want you to show them what I'm like I'd love to, that would be my greatest delight I'll only show them what you show me I mean, I just, all eyes on you Father because I want everyone worshipping you Well, I want everyone to know what you're like so So this conversation is going on and Jesus comes to the earth and he goes through his life and he comes to the final week and he, he heads determined to the cross and he dies on the cross buried, raised and then he comes back to the Father What's that conversation like? Son, that was perfect. I hope so, Father, because I, I can't think of anything I'd rather do than show them what you're like. Do we believe that that is what God is like? Do we really believe that God's glory is not primarily his power and his peak of the pyramid position, but actually his glory is his goodness? kindness and his self-givingness and his steadfast love and his mercy because that's what the Bible tells us I mentioned Moses up on the mountain where he said to an angry God who's just literally angry because his people have gone off and committed this spiritual wild adultery in front of a golden calf and Moses says show me your glory and God says well you can't see my face but what does he say? He says I will make my goodness to pass before you. And then he describes it at the end of Exodus 32, and then it happens in Exodus 34, and it talks about his goodness and his kindness and his mercy and his steadfast love and his faithfulness. And somehow we read that and we say, yeah, Moses was hidden in this cleft of the rock and there was this like, bruh, power display, like God showed him his biceps. I'm like, what? What? The text says, I will make my goodness to pass before you. I will declare my name, the Lord, the Lord. You know, abounding in loving kindness and faithfulness. And we go, yeah, yeah, right, like bright, shiny power, right? It's like the Bible says it, we just don't see it. And so in the end, Jesus came and he said, I of it crystal clear. This is what God's like. He hangs on a cross, naked, humiliated, bleeding, giving himself away to draw others into the relationship that only a God like that could offer. Isn't that amazing? So, as you chase through John, as you chase through your Bible, with that primary question in mind, what is God like? My prayer is that that you will get to to see and to fall more in love with just how amazing our God is. How often do we think about God's attributes? Omniscience, omnipotence, you know, all those. How often do we think of the attribute of love? Or the attribute, the perfection of God's humility. Because the Bible supports that idea. Our God is a humble God. Our God is a self-giving God. And if you really want to know what the Father's like, Jesus said, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. And that's why we want to keep our gaze fixed on that one hanging on that cross. Because on the cross, that's the clearest picture of what our God is like. And that needs to rock our world's if we're ever going to be able to spill to others the privilege of the gospel, of coming into relationship with a God like that just as we finish, I want you to notice a couple of things here, John 13 verse 30, as soon as Judas had taken the bread, he went out and it was night. So Judas has gone to portray Jesus, 31. When he was gone Jesus said, now is the Son of Man glorified and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will glorify the Son in himself and will glorify him at once. That's like a little cluster bomb of glorifies, right? Boom! Right at the moment when Judas goes. Isn't that interesting? This is the moment. Because this is the point. And we can't finish without Dipping into John 17. In John 12, there's this moment where Jesus says, Oh Father, glorify your name, and this voice comes back and you, oh, that's the most amazing thing ever. Well, actually, John 17 is even more amazing because we get to hear Jesus in this intimate conversation with his Father. And there's so much here, but let's just drop in at, at verse 18. Jesus says, As you sent me into the world. I have sent them into the world. They're taking my mission now and they're going into the world. And drop down to 22. This is really speaking about us. Not just the disciples, but those who would believe based on what they say. Jesus says, I have given them the glory that you gave me. Ooh, No. (laughs) Let me read that again. It can't be saying that. I have given them the glory that you gave me. Jesus glorifies us. There's a thought. That they may be one as we are one. I in them and you in me, may they be brought to complete unity. Why? To let the world know that you sent me. And look at this. Have loved them even as you have loved me. If you want to take a little phrase out of your Bible and ponder it for the next 20 years. How about that one? Once you see how much the Father loves the Son and then you read that, it just boom. It's like circuits just i <laughs> can't cope with that. You're telling me that, that the as, even as like, equals to the same love that the Father has for the Son is the Father's love for me. I always thought the Father was angry with me. That's what I've been told my whole life. God's angry. But it's okay. Jesus is nice. I want to smite him. It's okay. No, no, Father. He's with me. He's with me i be so careful when we present the gospel that, that we don't present this twisted view of God because whose love was it that sent the Son to rescue me and you? It was the Father's love. And so Jesus is saying, you know, the Father has loved you even as he loved me. And then he says this, Father, I want those you have given to me to be with me where I am and to see my glory. Although this sounds like heavenly, bright, and shiny, right? This is cool. He wants us to see his glory. The glory you have given me because you loved me before the creation of the world. Glory is not this... Thing, this entity, this kind of, I must glorify. It's not a gritted teeth reality. The father glorifying the son. Why? Because he loves him. Son, I want to honor you. I love you. Father, I want to honor you because I love you. I love you first. Well, I love you back. I mean, this is the reality of the trinity. I love you. I love you. I love you. And it's this giving, giving, giving. It's not glory grabbing. It's glory giving. And that's what is offered to us in the gospel. Righteous Father, the world does not know you, I know you. And they know that you have sent me. I have made you known to them and will continue to make you known in order that the love you have for me may be in them and that I myself may be in them. Oh, so much more we could say. But the four big questions are critical questions. And the most important one is what is God like? And as you read John and as you fix your eyes on Jesus, You will find the answer to that question And it will shake Your whole world view You'll discover that God is far more Concerned to give himself away In in humiliation Than he is to grab glory From people that aren't eager to give it In fact It seems like his passion is to glorify you And to tell you That he loves you just as much As he loves the son I suspect one or two of us in this room Struggle with Self-esteem, that's something to ponder. If God loves me, even as he loves his son, I don't know where to put myself. I tell you what, I'm going to put myself right down on my face before him and say, Oh Lord, I love you. I love you back. Because we love God. Why? Because he first loved us. And that's the message this world needs. And it's in the cross, as Jesus is lifted up, that all people from Montenegro and Turkey and Grimsby and your hometown and mine, that all people have the opportunity to be drawn to Jesus, to be drawn into relationship with God, to be invited into the communion of the Trinity himself. That's as good as it gets. Let's pray. Father I I know we know that we We've only just scratched the surface Of something that is utterly Transformational I pray that Tonight, tomorrow, in the next weeks In the next months That this truth, this reality Would grip our hearts, that by your spirit You'd pour out your love into us Transform us and give us The privilege of seeing others transformed too, we pray in Jesus' name Amen